Welcome to a special series of EMS World podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, EMS Provider Roundtable, What the COVID-19 Pandemic is Really Like, features John Goins, Arcady Hennessy, and Rich Straub, and is sponsored by Zoll. Hello, and welcome to the latest in EMS World series of special webinars on topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's presentation is an EMS Provider Roundtable, what the COVID-19 pandemic is really like. My name is Hillary Gates, and I am the Senior Editorial and Program Director at EMS World, and we're very happy to have you joining us today. We'd like to thank Zoll for sponsoring today's presentation. During the webinar, feel free to submit questions and comments for our speakers by using the question submission section on your screen. At the end of the roundtable, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the time allowed. This webinar will then be archived at emsworld.com slash webinars. Today, we are very pleased to welcome three EMS providers from across the country, and I'll start by having each speaker tell us a little bit about themselves. First, Arcady Hennessy from New Orleans EMS. Arcady? Hi, everybody. I'm Arcady. I work for New Orleans EMS. I'm a paramedic. I've been with New Orleans EMS for going on eight years now. I've been in EMS for 12 total now. I work night shift, love nights. I'm also a sprint paramedic on some nights. All depends on who comes to work and who doesn't. Thanks, Arcady. We also have joining us John Goins from the Seattle Fire Department. John? Hi, uh, my name is John Goins. I'm a captain with the Seattle Fire Department. I work uh, in our downtown area on Engine 2. It's a fairly busy, actually the busiest station in our city. Uh, our EMS and fire department are, are integrated, always have been in our city. So uh, a lot of what uh, is happening because of the uh, COVID-19 and other issues is stuff that we deal with directly in the fire department here in Seattle. Uh, I've been on Seattle Fire Department for 16 years. I had a couple of years in another fire department before that. And before that, I was a private ambulance EMT. And way, way, way before that, I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, where our Katie's from. Great, thanks, John. Finally, we have Rich Straub from Empress EMS in Yonkers, New York. Rich? Um, my name is Lieutenant Rich Straub. I'm with Empress EMS in Yonkers, New York. Um, Empress covers most of Westchester County and parts of the northern areas of New York City, including the Bronx and Manhattan. Um, so we've kind of been in the in the middle of all this chaos. Um, I am the program coordinator for our mobile integrated health community paramedic program, as well as our executive officer of our special operations. And I've been with Empress about Four years now, I've been in New York City EMS for about eight. Thanks, Rich. Let's jump right in. The three of you all work in cities that have been hit really hard by the coronavirus pandemic, I think you'd agree. 
Uh, we've heard many stories in the press about increased 911 call volume in New York and Seattle and New Orleans and about the very sick patients that you're seeing in the field. John, uh, Seattle is widely considered to be the epicenter of the first weeks of the pandemic. You had some of the first cases out there. Can you describe for us what it was like in those first few weeks as you and your crews were responding to calls and sort of beginning to ramp up your call volume? I can. So first off, the, uh, the first cases were actually in the suburbs around Seattle. So what we did at first was, was kind of watch and, and listen and, and wait, kind of like everyone else. We were, we were preparing, uh, knowing that, you know, if, they, if we had cases in, in Kirkland and in Snohomish County, which are to the east and north of us, that eventually, based on what we knew about the disease, it was going to spread to us pretty quickly. Of course, it did. Uh, we had made some uh, we had made some investments uh, way back when during the uh, Ebola scares and, and H1N1 and whatnot in training and, and equipment and uh, <clears throat> and procedures that uh, were very useful when this when this uh, COVID nineteen crisis started to to come to fruition here. So. Part of what we did was kind of dust off our pandemic plan, which, which was in place. The city's had one for a number of years now. And we started kind of down that path. Luckily, we had kind of had a script already to, to work from. And us on the, on the front lines, what we started to do was, was you know, utilize additional PPE. Uh, initially, like a lot of other places, we were asking people where they had been. Uh, where you know had they traveled to China, things like that. Very quickly in this in this thing, we all all realized that that actually didn't matter anymore. Once once it was in the community, you know it didn't matter who you, who you'd been around. You you may have it anyway. So we started to treat just about anybody with cold or flu like symptoms as if they had uh, a COVID nineteen infection, which which helped. It, it helped us. Uh, reduce our infections in the, you know, in the fire service, in the fire department. Uh, but it, you know, obviously increased our PPE usage, increased our, our stress level, uh, and, cre and changed a lot of things around, around the fire station and around the city about how we operate these things. Um, we, I'm sorry, I'm looking at my notes here. Um, you know, a lot of things are, are different about the fire station life. Uh, now, you know, the, the, it's a very uh, familial organization. There's a lot of hugging and, and, and hanging out and whatnot. And a lot of those things have had to change, uh, at least for the time being. Uh, you know, having big meals together and, and things like that are, uh, are, are just hallmarks of what the fire, fire station is like. And a lot of that stuff has had to, had to change for now. Again, like I said, I work in a, a busy part of downtown Seattle. and it's a ghost town during the week when it when it never was full of tree full of traffic full of people things that normally get on your nerves and now you look at them and you're and you're thinking like where where is everyone at you can kind of feel the life draining out of out of our city which is which is a sad thing so um we're all we're all excited for it to somewhat get back to normal at some point but uh we've we've done well our city one more thing just our city's done because we had plans in place and because we uh, we kind of got ahead of it early, there are a few things that we've done that were that were pretty pro proactive to get ahead of it. We had a, the first uh, 
COVID-19 testing site for our first responders so, to, so that if we had exposures, we could send them directly to one of our people to get tested and then get the results back within 12 or 24 hours. Uh, we have quarantine sites available for our people that, that uh, are not at their own house. So if they have vulnerable family members, uh, they don't have to go home if they, if they don't feel safe doing so. And uh, as, as of uh, the beginning of this, you know, the state and the city have done a, a good job of making sure that uh, people will be taken care of through workman's comp type of things uh, if they're exposed at work to the COVID symptoms. Thanks, John. Arcady, New Orleans has been hit hard too, not only your city and your agency, New Orleans EMS, but also you personally. You ended up with the virus yourself, right? I did. I did. You've given us some passion um, to talk about it, so I'll let you discuss. <laughs> what was it like? What was the course of your illness like? How are you doing now? Um, I'm doing much better now. Thank you for asking. Um, I've been back at work for about a week and a half now. Um, I had a very, very mild case, so I was very lucky compared to some of my coworkers. Um, so far with New Orleans EMS of our 166 employees, 62 employees have been tested now, and we've had 16 come back positive for the COVID-19, including myself. Um, we still have four pending, and we've had 42 negative cases, thankfully. Um, Currently, we have 72 employees who have been quarantined with 20 who are still in isolation right now. Um, I, like I said, was very, very lucky. I had a very mild case. I had a cough. I had some minor body aches, not even really a fever. And by the time that I got my test results back from the doctor, the worst of my symptoms were already over but I had to keep myself in quarantine until I was symptom free for 72 hours before I could go back to work, which was probably the hardest part, knowing that all of my coworkers were out there working and working their selves ragged and I couldn't be out there helping them to take care of people. So it's a, it's been a lot. I'm definitely happy to be back at work. You know, happy to be out there to take care of people again. You know, we're seeing signs as mild as what I had up to people who are in full respiratory distress that need that airway intervention, whether it be king airways, combi tubes, or full intubation. You know, it's, the symptoms are all over the place down here. Got it. Rich, Empress serves uh, New York's fourth largest city of Yonkers, and you've definitely experienced increased call volumes. We've seen in the news the city of New York running call volumes as high as 7,000 per day, uh, which just seems impossible. Call volume is thankfully lessening, uh, according to latest reports, but that must have been an incredible time for all of you. You know, the evolution of a call for a possible COVID patient, um, Arcadia alluded to some of the signs and symptoms uh, that these patients exhibit. It seems like maybe your behavior on scene as a provider might actually be a little slower and more deliberate now that you have to put on all the PPE and interview them from six feet away. But at the same time, I'm sure in the back of your mind, uh, in the front of your mind, you're thinking these patients are acutely ill. Can you talk a little bit about your operations, your your treatments, transports, and the transferring of care for these patients? 
Yeah, so our uh, we certainly got slammed. John kind of took the the first week of it there, and it quickly got over here. Uh, our first case sitting in our shell, which is right in our backyard. Um, so we had a little bit of time to prep, but we didn't prep for anything uh, near the scale that we actually got hit with. Um, so obviously our approach is much more calculated now. Any 911 call coming in is getting screening questions. Our providers are taking that little extra time before entering a scene to make sure they're in the proper PPE. Um, so the approach is definitely much more calculated, but from the get-go, our number one priority was assuring that our providers are safe and in the right equipment. And we know if we start losing them, then it's gonna have a negative effect. So it's kind of uh, risk over, over benefit and keeping our employees out there. So we are taking a little bit of extra time and a more calculated approach, but it's not affecting care. Um, we definitely have seen a 200% increase in uh, the amount of time a call takes just with decon afterwards, the decon process, we've kind of gotten down from two hours and that initial CDC guideline all the way down to about five, 10 minutes. Um, so that's certainly helped. Um, but we are seeing across the board different types of symptoms. We're seeing mild cases where it's just runny nose, headache. We're kind of walking in as if everyone has it just because we got hit with such large numbers that after about the second week, we knew we were in containing anymore we were kind of just trying to mitigate what was going on so we were kind of taking an approach that everyone has it now because we've seen symptoms as little as runny nose headache no symptoms at all and we've seen obviously a large increase in cardiac arrests intubations and those severe patients that were walking in and you're finding with a saturation in the 40s and 50s so it's definitely been uh, a change in our approach but we've adapted quickly and uh, it's kind of become the new normal. Thanks, Rich. You all uh, mentioned the PPE, the gowns, the gloves, the goggles. Um, let's talk about the realities of that increased amount of uniform um, and of the fatigue of the overheating and the fogged up glasses. Do you have enough PPE? Are you reusing um, the, the decontamination procedures of not just your ambulance, but your gear? I'll start with you, Arcady. What's what's that like for you in New Orleans? Uh, well, we all know New Orleans is really hot, and it's only April, and we're still we're already in the eighty degree temperatures outside. So, adding on top of our regular uniform, the N ninety five mask, the respirators, the gown, all of those things. Uh, the heat's a problem for us. So we've actually changed our uniform policy from our regular button-down shirt that we're wearing, that I'm wearing currently, um, to a daily polo to help keep us cooler, at least when we're having to don all of this extra PPE. Um, we're doing well with our supply of PPE right now. We were prepared for it. Um, we also were very lucky that one of the large home improvement stores donated an entire pallet of half-face respirator masks. So every medic EMP that we have on the streets right now was issued their own personal respirator mask. Um, so we do have those, we have the extra filters for those and everything. Um, we are set with our gowns and our suits. We do have full Tyvek suits 
for those already confirmed positive patients that we're responding to when it's just that flu-like symptoms, that possible positive, then it's definitely still our respirators, our goggles, um, and then a gown instead of the full Tyvek suits. We're saving the Tyvek suits for those confirmed positive patients that we have. Um, same thing like Rich said with the deconning, you know, it, it took a while initially for us to decon in between calls, but we've gotten, we've gotten a lot quicker at doing it now. And then we're very lucky that we have our rescue technicians that are at the office that help us. At the end of every shift, they decon with specialized equipment inside of all of our units for us in between every shift. So it's, it's, it's taken some time to get used to it, but we all pretty much have, have our system down now of how to take care of us and how to take care of our units. Good. John, you, you've been wearing PPE the longest of the three. Uh, what's it like in Seattle? Um, what's the reality? Uh, very similar to what Arcady's saying. We, uh, we're lucky we, we had a, 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 we're a large department, so we had a large supply and these are things we normally would only use on a, on a trauma. You know, when there's a lot of blood everywhere, then you put, you put a gown on and, and, and a mask and things like that. And we've had to upgrade that policy to basically use it on, on every response. And we've had to change our, change our, uh, our policies several times uh, over the past few months to, uh, to catch up with what, what makes sense versus uh, the, the real uh, issue of conserving PPE because uh, it's clearly hard to get a lot of this, to get a lot of replacements for, the, for that stuff. So uh, we started off with, well, if it's, if it's flu-like symptoms, all four of us on the, on the engine, if we're all gonna wear the, the full mask, eye, eyeglasses, gloves, and gown. And we've got that paired down to just the, we're gonna have an entry team of two people and have them go and meet the patient and the other two, two folks stay somewhat, somewhat back, back, which is a, it's a change for us because we are, we're known for a fairly high level of patient care. And we, you know, when grandma calls 911 and gets a fire engine full of four people to help her, we all try to do something for her. So it's, it's a little hard to step, step back and, 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 you know, kind of feels like you're not, you're not doing much when you're staring out there, but, uh, that it preserves the PPE, it, it avoids an exposure for, for two people on the crew. And in a lot of cases, it work, in most cases, it works out just fine. If they need us, they can call us on the radio and bring us in. Uh, our, our supplies are fairly, uh, are fairly good right now. Like I said, we, we had uh, kind of had a good supply. Not everybody in the region is that way, but we're starting to collect a lot from the community and from uh, from you know Gates Foundation and different places like that that are actually donating donating or even sourcing the, uh, the equipment from overseas and having it sent here, so uh, I think we're we're okay on PPE for now, but we are in a mode where we're starting to try to conserve it as well. Yeah. Rich, let's talk about uh, the increased call volume for cardiac arrest patient patients. Um, both New York and New Orleans, I know, have seen dramatic increases, sometimes twofold increases in cardiac arrest patients. And some of your providers are pronouncing multiple patients per day. That must be so difficult. Can you walk us through what that scene sort of looks like and how it feels and how are you coping? 
Yeah, I mean, it's certainly been tough. It's a scene that we've all seen before, but maybe we do that 12 around our normal 911 areas. We're doing about 12 to 15 cardiac arrests a week. Um, two weeks ago, we were doing about 40 cardiac arrests every two days. Um, so it's certainly <clears throat> taken a large impact on the employees. Um, you're telling families that there's nothing further you could do. You're sedating, paralyzing, and transporting a patient that they may never see again. So you kind of have to prep them for that reality. Um, so it's it's certainly been tough. Uh, the amount of cardiac arrests in this area is astounding. Um, I've never seen anything like it. Um, but we're getting through. Um, like you said, we were lucky with PPE. We were lucky enough to be proximal to New York City and cover a large area ourselves. So we had a decent stockpile. Um, we also were lucky enough earlier or towards the end of last year, we uh, joined a EMS group, Patient Care EMS uh, Solutions. So as a national company, they were able to kind of redistribute some resources to us uh, as we were getting hit the hardest. So that certainly helped out um, significantly. Um, but it's been tough. It's finding that balance of um, identifying the patients first and then kind of having different protocols for different sets. Like Arcady said, we're not using Tyvek for every call. Um, we just don't have the numbers. But any call with an aerosolized procedure um, where you're intubating, using a BVM, um, we're assuring that we're in full respirator, Tyvek suit, and we've also uh, we do a lot of inner facilities at Empress as well. So little things like N95s, gowns, gloves were huge and in the forefront. But on the EMS side, um, we've also had some trouble finding filters for ventilators and for aerosolized procedures. Um, and with the increase in cardiac arrests, just finding epinephrine, calcium, bicarb, um, we're getting hit with trying to find PPE as well as using an exorbitant amount of equipment on the other end. Um, so it's been tough. It's been tough on the employees, but we're getting through. Um, like I said in the beginning, our number one priority is our road crews and making sure they're getting what they're ne they need, they're properly protected, and as well as Empress providing resources on the back end in terms of psychological. Or Katie, can you tell us what it's like for you on those cardiac arrest calls as a paramedic? Uh, we have definitely also had that increase, um, you know, in March of last year to March of this year, we've had a 53% increase in the amount of cardiac arrest calls that we've run. And we've been through multiple protocol changes since the beginning of this pandemic to help deal with them. You know, I, we're normally prior to the pandemic working cardiac arrest on scene for 30 minutes minimum before making that decision of if we're pronouncing or if we're transporting. And it's gotten to a point where we're running so many that we've cut that down to once we've administered three rounds of epinephrine, you know, at that point now is where we're deciding whether we're transporting or we're pronouncing on scene. So it's, it's, it's been rough um, because it's, it's not one sort of age range that we're dealing with either. That's probably the hardest part, you know, it's now up to us deciding who lives and who dies, as sad as that sounds, you know, it's, it's a really scary thing to be a part of, because I don't want to be blamed for that, but I have a job that I have to do, and it's, it's rough, you know, we just, 
we're all there for each other. We're all there to support each other uh, with the decisions that we have had to make. And we'll get through it. And the most we can do for families is just, you know, explain to them what's going on, explain to them that we've given the best care that we could and what they can do from here to take care of themselves further and the rest of their families further after having this family member pass away. John, this is uh, definitely a different time for all Americans and, and our patients are scared and their families are scared. Can you talk about what patients and families say to you when you arrive and how you sort of run that call and what are their fears? How do you ease their worries? You know, it's, I, I, saw, I thought of this question. I, I, the interesting thing is it's not so much what they say, it's, it's what they do, how they look at you. You know, you're, we've all seen the movies where there's some, some outbreak or something and people show up in Tyvek suits or what have you or dress like we are. And it takes some of the human element out of what we, what we do and what we love doing. And so you, you walk up to someone's house, you normally would you know, treat that person like, like family. You're trying to help, help this person and fix whatever's going on here. And now you have, you have glasses on, you have a mask on, you have this gown on, and you don't even look like a person anymore. And it, it, uh, you can tell that they don't feel the, the, the personal attention that we used to be able to give. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't have a solution for that, but I, I can, I can see the look on their faces. I can, I can see that I'm not as connected with the people that we used to, we used to see as much as we are now because we can't. Like we, you have to, you're, you're standing six feet away from, you know, either a coworker, someone you've known for years, and you, you can't get too close to them, or this person who wants you to comfort them. Um, and you're unable to, or or if you, uh, that's a nice cup. <laughs> it's making her cough a little, drinking all that bleach. It's sorry. Sorry, guys. Okay. The, um, but it's, uh, so it's, uh, and also there's, I think another thing that, that people aren't saying is that people don't necessarily want to say that they're sick. They don't want to say that they have these symptoms because there are people that are feeling like maybe we won't help them. And that's totally, that's a hundred percent not true, but but I think, you know, we're now that it's, I think it's getting out in the community that we're, we're highly recommending people to not go to the hospital uh, for regular cold or flu-like symptoms because your, your likelihood of catching it there is more so than if you don't have it is, is more than if you just stayed at home. And there's, unfortunately, until you're a critical patient, there's not much that can be done there for you anyway. So that's a, that's a, that's another aspect of it. You know, it's not, not directly answering your question because they, it's, it's not for me anyway, it's not, it hasn't been what they say. It's, it's what they don't say or what they, what they look like. Incredible. Rich, what's your experience been like in, in your city? Um, I mean, we've just been getting hit on all ends. So like I said, our cardiac arrests are up 417%. Um, our coverage area has about 42,000 cases, which puts us 
in terms of states, um, we have more cases just in our coverage area than 47 states, um, which some of the numbers are just shocking. The volume that we're dealing with is insane. Um, and yeah, these people are scared, um, especially in this area. Um, we kind of changed our approach. We've changed protocols several times. They are seeing things on the news about, oh, paramedics are not working cardiac arrest in the field. Um, so it, just to ease some fears, we found getting the right information. There's so much information out there and people are watching the news. They're getting it from seven different resources with seven different answers. So just being that healthcare provider in the field and having the right information to give out um, makes a huge difference. It goes a long way. Um, if you give, give people the proper information, it tends to ease their fears, but there's really nothing you could say to a family um, when you're also kind of trying to work in that you need to say your goodbyes. Um, so it's, it's tough. Um, we're trying to find different ways to kind of ease the fears out in society, ease the fears on the road with our own people. Um, so it's just been, it's been a lot. It's been changing rapidly, um, but we're getting through um, and seem, people seem to be, um, <clears throat> like John said, a lot of people are scared that they might have it. Um, so we're getting a increase in volume with calls of, hey, I just feel like I might have COVID-19. Haven't been exposed, um, haven't been near anyone, isolated the entire time, but that fear is out there. So we're we're dealing with those patients as well. Um, luckily, um, as a private company with a community paramedic program, we've kind of been able to refer those patients into our community paramedic program. So although we're just doing a quick assessment and leaving them at home, we kind of added a piece to that treat and release. Um, and we're doing follow-ups within 72 hours, making sure that their symptoms haven't gotten worse. Um, because we did see in certain areas of the country, patients being left behind and then declining very quickly. Um, we are seeing patients decline very fast. So that follow-up has uh, been real important for us and helped a lot of patients in the community. Great. Arcady, you uh, talked about some protocol changes. I imagine the protocol change for your cardiac arrest calls are not the only change you've had. And all of you have experienced these changes as your agencies and your medical directors are shifting quickly, as quickly as they can to respond to the latest best practices. How do you handle these changes and, and what's your advice to your, your chiefs and your leaders and your medical directors in terms of getting that information out? Arcady, can you talk about that? Um, I think our, our chiefs, our administrators have done very well with getting that information out to us through our email system. Every time there's a change, they send it out as a large email to everybody. Sometimes it's multiple times a day that we're changing the same protocols. So it is, it's hard to stay on top of it, but what we've been doing is, you know, at the beginning of the shift, at least with my shift anyway, you know, we're all making sure we're still on the same page, printing out the most updated copies of things that have been changed to make sure that we have copies on every ambulance and just talking about it with each other. You know, we've gone from having new specialized filters for any BBM treatments that we're doing, anything like that, any CPAP treatments that we're doing, um, any nebulized treatments we're doing. We're going to try to do as much as we can on scene 
with all doors and windows of the ambulance open and like we talked about before with our respirators on our goggles on anything like that for anything that has to do with airway um it's it's a lot it's a lot and we just do our best to stay on top of it and our administrators and our chiefs they all understand that we're doing the best we can and they're they're there with us they're very good about being there with us being there to support us and do what they can to make sure that we're safe as well John, what is that like for you in Seattle with the protocol changes from as early as late March, or excuse me, as early as late February, uh, you've been going through these? Yeah, so I was just looking through the, uh, the, all the changes before we started. We are on version nine of our, uh, of our training package on, on COVID-19 response, and it's coming out around once a week. Uh, with with uh, critical changes happening when they need to, kind of like Arcadia was saying, uh, we're it seems like we're 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 doing a good job of keeping it to once a week. Every Friday we have a department wide uh, Skype meeting, and everyone on duty, and even if you're off duty, if you want, uh, you can watch. And the chief and the assistant chiefs will uh, uh, disseminate all the all the new talking points. And uh, if you're not on duty that day, then your your chain of command will give it to you as well. And so the information is getting out, but as all of us know in, in our organizations, like you know, that change management is is key. And anytime you try to change too much too fast, there's always pushback, there's always confusion, there's always frustration. I think everyone understands that this is this situation is changing on on a daily basis. And we have to adapt, and I think for the most part we're handling it well. The one thing I would I would say is whatever your whatever you have for your employees to look at, it should be one thing. It should be not ten versions, and you have to look back to version five to find out what I do about X, Y, and Z. It should just be this is the latest version of what we have. Every all the information you need about what we're doing is in here. And to me, that's that's a better move. It, it's it takes more work on the front end to, to do it that way, and it's not always possible. But I think if I if I had one uh, piece of feedback for our processes, and we and we finally combined them all, so they're all they're all together. But uh, that was a uh, that was a, that was an issue that we had some information in version six that wasn't repeated in version eight per se. And so you had to go back and forth and to look at them. But uh, overall, overall, we've been we've been more nimble than a than a eleven hundred person organization usually is. Rich, what's your experience like with those protocol changes as a lieutenant, as a leader in your in your shop? Yeah, it's been it's been tough. Um, I mean, the biggest thing is just delivering a clear message. We want to make sure they understand what they're doing when they go out every day. And with things changing, it's it's getting us as supervisors out on the ground level and speaking with our staff, making sure that they understand it and can repeat it back to us. We kind of are using a do one, teach one um, type uh, model there. Um, so it's it's been tough. It's definitely been changing by the day, but uh, nothing we're not handling. Um, some other protocol changes that um, <clears throat> everyone's talking about, the cardiac arrest protocol changes, but uh, we also did a large protocol change with uh, the idea of keeping people home um, and out of the hospital. So we did a lot of treat and release, alternative destination stuff. 
all stuff that EMS was looking forward to eventually that kind of got jumped on us a little early. Got it. Let's uh, talk a little bit about the nitty gritty, the day to day. Arcady, many of your fellow EMS providers wonder what this experience would be like on a day to day basis. Tell us about what you and your partner and your crew do on a shift um, in this day and age. How do you how do you rest? How do you eat? Do you get to take time out, grab a nap, um, talk with your loved ones, get your reports done all during this crazy time? Uh, there's definitely no naps. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, now, we only work 12-hour shifts. We don't work 24s. Um, so definitely no naps in that 12 hours. Um, because of the increase in call volume, we have made a couple changes lately aside from protocols. New Orleans EMS was initially a strictly ALS service. Medics take the calls, medics take the calls. We just recently put up BLS level trucks, which is a completely new thing with New Orleans EMS to take some of that strain away from the paramedics having to tech all of the calls. We have started letting EMTs tech calls as well. We've also had surge units respond um, from other parts of Louisiana that have come down and they're responding to calls for us as well, running 911 aside next to us to help with that call volume as well, because we're not as big of a service as Rich and John come from. So there's times where there's 10 ambulances for all of New Orleans, and it it gets a little rough. We're often no units available. Um, So you, you do what you can, you, you know, take your five minutes between clearing your stretcher while your partner's decounting the truck to kind of decompress, grab a bite to eat. We have been very lucky in New Orleans. We've had um, the Red Bean Project has been donating food from restaurants from all over the city to us every day to feed all of our crews. So our supervisors and administration have been very good about circulating all of the ambulances, including our third units, because they're helping us out. We can't leave them out. Getting us all through the office you know, for a little bit every night to make sure that we get food and something to drink and we do have a chance to eat. Um, It's other than that, working at night, that's the only chance we really get to eat because we can't drive through any fast food places and get food because we just, we don't fit. We can't go inside anywhere. Stores are closed. So it's, it's been a blessing that they've been feeding us at the office every day. It's been very helpful. You know, other than that is get the reports done and get ready for your next call. John, what's it like for you in Seattle with you and your crews? So uh, I touched on it a little bit earlier. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things about fire station life that have had to change a little bit. And that's, you know, it's nothing compared to what folks are dealing with outside. But uh, that is uh, that is certainly our decompression space, our our, our have you know, our fun time, our, our, you know, our stress relief. And now, because you're also worried about, you know, does, does your buddy next to you have it and not know, and is he giving it to you? You know, and, and, you know, that bowl of popcorn that used to sit on the counter, well, I can't dip, dip my hand in that anymore. Because, because, you know, who, who else put their hand in there? Uh, the, and I think there's just a higher level of stress going on runs than there used to be. 
you, you used to, I think, I'm guessing every one of us on this on this call, when the when the bell hit, the pager went, or what have you, you and you saw what it was, you were fine. You're like, oh, well, this is a broken leg. This is a cardiac arrest. This is a car accident. Whatever it is, I I know what I'm doing. I'm I'm not concerned at all. I I've been doing this long enough that I'm not concerned about my own safety on this call. And now, especially in the beginning, when we weren't wearing PPE on everyone or that level of PPE on everyone, you know, we would send people down into the transit tunnel, you know, because someone fell down the escalator. Well, that guy fell down the escalator and then he sat up and started coughing on everybody. And, oh, well, maybe that guy is, is, is positive now. And is he going to get tested? If I don't send him to the hospital, he's not going to get tested. So there's there's this whole, you know, algorithm of, of decisions that have have had to change because of how things are now. Uh, you know, the, the community has been great. Uh, like I said, it seems empty, or and and uh, that's that's very weird. Uh, and that's in the downtown area. It seems like out in the neighborhoods, the call volume has been the same. Uh, the the, uh, the community has been great. They're donating supplies. They're, you know, they come by and, and, and give cookies, and that's that's kind of normal. But now, you know, you kind of we always have this joke with the cops, like cops don't eat the things that people bring them. We do because people like us. And now we look at it like, well, I like you, but I, I can't eat these cookies you made. Like it's a uh, it's a, it's an interesting thing. But uh, look, normal. No, I mean, most of the support in the community has been great. Uh, but there's just a higher level, a level of stress that wasn't there before. I knew, you know, fires, rescues, you know, car accidents, all that stuff. It's it's crazy business, but it's something I'm used to. And this is something that, you know, none of us are used to. And it's kind of changed a lot about how we're responding and how we're, how we're interacting with each other. Rich, what would you add to that from Empress's experience? Yeah, I mean, like John was saying, uh, I mean, downtime is nearly impossible um, to get right now, but we're finding time where we can that decon process. We actually hired some people from the outside to do some decon for us. That way those EMTs can wipe down their gear, get a little bit of a break. Um, we're certainly not hungry. Um, like they said, we're getting donations every day. Um, I've probably eaten Italian food for every day for the last five weeks, but the donations are great. The community has been great. Um, it's it's weird to see because the streets in New York are empty, um, which is not new, but the people are still out there. They're still helping us out. They're doing what they can and doing their piece, um, which is great. Um, in terms of crew interaction, we're certainly sitting a little farther apart in the firehouses or maybe your partner's leaving the truck while you're posted on the road just to walk around and not be sitting right next to each other. But um, it's been refreshing the past week that kind of sick EMS humor is starting to come back around the, the base here. And people are kind of, like I said, it's kind of becoming the new norm. So although we're not fully out of the woods here, we've gotten so used to the decom process and the PPE process that it's, it's becoming the new norm and people are settling in, which is nice to see. Good. We have time for one more question. And I thought I'd just ask you guys to think about what it is that you would like people to know about the reality of your job right now and about being an EMS provider in this just unprecedented time. What, what would you wanna say, if you could say anything, 
to the, to the public, to your employer, to your family, your crew, the hospital, the politicians, uh, to whomever. What's that message? Arcady, can you start? We're trying. We're trying our best. Um, we're out here every day, busting our butts to take care of the public, the citizens. The least you guys could do for us is wash your hands. Stay home. Do the things that we're asking y'all to do. Help us help you. Stop going out. Stop getting in these large groups. Let's actually try to stop spreading this around to everybody. And remember, we are busy. We are super, super busy. If it takes us a little while to get to you, again, we're doing our best. We're trying. We get to you in the order of severity of the calls. You know, it's hard times. It's getting easier because we're getting used to working without the assistance of other services like the fire department or the police department. But it's still rough. Um, to my coworkers, we're going to get through it, guys. Absolutely, we're going to get through it. We're going to come out stronger in the end, and we are definitely going to party it up when it's all done. Well said. Rich, what's your message? Um, on top of all that, same things. I know our three cities got hit particularly hard, but for those areas of the country that aren't seeing the numbers that we are, uh, don't downplay this. Um, take the right precautions. Stay home. I know you're not seeing the numbers and the volume that we are, um, but you're also not putting out the testing. So that doesn't mean the numbers aren't out there. Um, the people are out there. They don't even know they have it. So stay home. Take it seriously. We are on the decline, but that doesn't mean it's time to go out and party quite yet. Um, to my coworkers, we will be partying as well when this is all done. Um, can't wait for that. Um, it's going to be a great day. But um, just EMS in general, I mean, this is a good time to um, kind of grasp the situation and make the best of it. There's a lot that can come out of this moving forward for the future. Um, EMS kind of, this was the first situation where EMS kind of took the forefront for the first responders and fire and PD kind of took that supplementary role. Um, so this is the time for us to step up. This is the time for us to start lobbying, um, moving our scope forward. We are high level providers out in the field every day. And this pandemic has kind of shown that although we're working harder than ever and doing more than ever, are we being utilized properly or underutilized? Is there more that we could be doing um, in a different aspect? Um, is there a different role that you can give a paramedic? Um, so you're starting to see that a little bit with treatment place and alternative destinations, paramedics starting to work in hospitals, things like that. So just to our politicians and everyone, this is the time that EMS becomes essential. Um, this is where we move EMS forward. And we have a good opportunity to do that here. And I think good, big changes will come. And um, as bad as everything's been, uh, once we get through this, hopefully we start seeing some positive things come out of it as well. Outstanding. John, what's your message? Uh, my message is uh, we're still here. Uh, there's going to be some pain in our future, but we're all going to get through it. And it's going to be okay when we're done. Uh, it's it's uh, uh, to kind of talk about what Rich is talking about. EMS has always been essential, but I, I hear where you're coming from. And that's a, uh, that's a that's a powerful statement, and that's true. Uh, I think 
you know, it's obvious that by taking certain precautions, uh, you can have a better outcome for your community. And that seems to be what we're, what we're doing here. And there are certain places where it's not possible. Like I've, I've been to New York City, I love it there. And I think, when I think about social distancing in New York City, those two things do not go together. You know, you, you, it's, 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 it's impossible in some ways. But, uh, but do what you can, uh, take care of yourself, listen, listen to the folks that, that know what they're talking about. You know, when, when, you know, you have a public health professional that has spent their, their entire career as a, as a doctor or other healthcare provider telling you that this is what I know about coronavirus and, and epidemiology and whatnot, and this is what I think you ought to do, that's, that's, that's the person you ought to listen to about this. And, and I think we've shown by, by doing that, we can have a good outcome or a better outcome. And I think if we all do that and, and, and remain steadfast and, and trying, to, trying to be good at, at distancing ourselves and understanding what's going on and trying to do what we can to, to help it out, I think we're all gonna do better. It's, it's not the only factor. You know, people want to, they want to hunt and fish and, and go and go out to eat. And do, I mean, we, none of us want to sit in, sit in the house all day. Well, I don't want to do that. So I understand. I've, I've seen people, nothing has changed with our governor's uh, restrictions on, on people's movements. But there's a lot more people out on the street today than there were two weeks ago. You know, I can, I can see that. And and on the one hand, I understand you no one wants to be cooped up forever, but we don't want to have a situation like we had in a couple of cities around the world where they eased, every, eased everything back and then their infection rate shot back up. So we, ha we have to temper that. We have to, we have to understand the realities of our situation, but we also have to hold fast to, to doing the right thing so we can get out of this. Excellent. I want to thank all of you for sharing your experiences, Arcady, Rich, John. We're going to now open up the discussion to the audience. And again, if you have a question for our speakers, you can send it in using the question box on your screen. We'll try to get to as many as we can in the remaining time. So please stay tuned for the question and answer period. We're getting lots of questions coming in for our speakers. Let's start our question and answer period with a question about mental health. What are some of the ways that you and your colleagues are coping with the emotional stress that you're going through? And what advice would you give to your, your chiefs, your leaders, in terms of how to support you best during this time? John, do you wanna jump in? Sure, sure. Uh, this is John Goins from Seattle. Uh, one. Uh, I think what's what's been important for us is is knowing that the fire department uh, and the and the state in general seems to uh, be doing a good job of of taking care of us. There are hiccups here and there for sure, uh, especially in the beginning with uh, trying to get people tested, uh, trying to get them a place to go uh, if if they were infected or suspected of being infected, and uh, we've we've pretty much ironed those things out. Uh, we've our city. Uh, I, I can't. Uh, I can't stress enough. They've they've uh, gone above and beyond. I think as as far as uh, providing us a place to be if if we're unable to go home. Uh, let's say if you had a an, uh, a family member that that you were concerned about infecting, and even if you just in general don't want to be home during this period, uh, you can you can have a place to stay. Uh, 
that uh, that doesn't uh, endanger your family. So that's that's one aspect of it. Uh, we have a very robust robust program for getting our members tested when they uh, when they when they have exposure or if they've uh, if they start exhibiting symptoms, and we get those results back uh, within a day. Uh, so that allows peace of mind. Uh, we have uh, a couple of the universities and, and research centers in the area that are doing uh, trials and, 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 and uh, just long-term testing uh, to see uh, to how the virus is working and, and what, our, what our exposure really is. And I think, uh, you know, we, we're trying to somewhat maintain some normalcy while we go through something that's clearly not normal for, for any of us. So I get at my station, you know, we we're a fire department and uh and we 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 do EMS and fire and we do them both well. We but we are focused so much on COVID these days that you know sometimes it's a break to to go outside and, and train on something besides that. You know, and we're lucky we have that distraction where we can go do the other part of our job you know, and not be uh, so concerned about, about COVID 24 seven. But, um, and, we, and we also have the, the, the mental health resources that we've, we've cultivated over the past few years uh, for PTSD and things like that. Uh, those, the fo folks that are involved in that are working extremely hard to connect with people and to offer those resources when, uh, when our members need it. Mark, Katie, can you comment on this question about emotional stress and um, help with your kind of mental health? Uh, we have a whole um, peer program that we've already had in play prior to the virus outbreak for mental health and wellness among all of us. So that's come into play a lot during this time, as well as just, you know, all being there for each other. You know, calling up your coworker, hey, how you doing today? Do you need anything? Um, you know, that family aspect that we have at New Orleans EMS has been really helpful with that emotional stress that we're all dealing with right now. And Rich, how about at Empress EMS? Yeah, like our Katie said, uh, that family aspect is really helping us out. We kind of took a grassroots approach to that. Like I said, we have supervisors on the ground. We're checking in with people daily, making sure that they know what they're doing, putting procedures in place to make their day-to-day -day a little bit easier on them, as well as we have our critical incident debrief um, lines, and our union took some steps to make sure there's people available for our road crews to speak to. So. We've definitely increased our efforts in terms of psychological response, but um, that that family aspect and that peer interaction is uh, really what I think helps the most. So uh, another viewer is asking, basically, are your departments giving you needed downtime in terms of call volume and if you need to step away from taking calls? Um, because you're so busy and so stressed out. And also, this person is asking, are any of you seeing a reduction in pay or a change in pay because of the budgetary impacts, the negative budgetary impacts? Rich, you want to start? Sure. Um, in terms of pay, nobody's seeing a pay cut. Um, our, we are uh, 
if anything, our payroll has increased with uh, added shifts and different things going on. We're helping with different testing sites going on. So we added shifts. Pay is not decreasing by any means. It's not our uh, road crew's fault that this is happening. There's no reason to cut their pay. They're in here working just as hard as ever. Um, so no concerns there. John? Uh, well, we have never had any scheduled downtime. It's just not something that's that's accounted for in our uh, in our in our world. Uh, you know, if you're on for 24 hours, and you know you can be taking a shower, eating dinner, or doing what doing whatever. Uh, we we are we are are not. That's not part of our culture to have downtime. So it's still not, uh, or have to have scheduled downtime. Obviously, if if the work is done around the station and you're not on a, on a response and you're not training, then you can kind of find something to do on your own and take a break. And interestingly, our overall call volume is either steady or or uh, or decreased depending on where you work. Uh, like I said in, in the uh, in the webinar, like there's downtown, for example, there's a severe reduction in the population right now, although it's starting to creep back up. So we have we have less people, and uh, and so in some in some areas the the call volume is actually down. The but in the out in the neighborhoods it's it's pretty much the same. Uh, and we've had no reduction in pay. Uh, you know, along with Rich, there's uh you know when we when we have to uh, quarantine members, then other people have to fill in for them, and so there's a uh, there's an impact with that. But um, no reduction in pay. I think you know it's it's clearly you know all of our jurisdictions are going to have some some financial impacts from this, and and so that will play out later on. But for now, not, nothing like that's happened here. Anything to add, Arcady? Um, right now, we're in the same position. You know, we've we've never had scheduled downtime. Other than, you know, if you do have, like, just a critical, critical call that emotionally you're having some problems dealing with, that wellness committee that I was talking about comes into play. You know, if, if you need to talk to somebody, we do allow downtime to meet with a member of the wellness committee and get your mental health in order before you get back out there and start running calls again. Uh, so we do have that aspect of things, but other than that, it's, you know, one partner's deconning while the other partner's doing their cardiac arrest report or whatever critical call report that they had to do. Uh, the pay, currently, we're not having any impacts because of it, but it is something that we are all trying to prepare for and keep in the back of our minds that it could happen. Hopefully it won't, but we all have to remember that that's still that's still out there, still a possibility. Must be really frustrating to have to hold back some of the treatments that you typically use as a paramedic or an EMT, uh, such as those that might be dangerous for you, aerosol generating. Arcady, you had talked about that with some protocol changes. You're less hands-on with your patients. This viewer is asking how you've adapted to that. Arcady? Um, so we have had some protocol changes. It's it's hard. It's really hard knowing that this patient needs a breathing treatment and being able to actually say, mm, 
I think we could hold off till we get to the hospital. So I know personally, I have still been administering breathing treatments, not to everybody, but to those people who are on the worser end of things. Um, it is different doing more of that treatment on scene to where we can have the doors and the windows of the back of the unit open and have that exhaust fan to help pull anything that's aerosolized out of the truck. So it's, it's, it's been different with the waiting on scene, doing more on scene as opposed to starting everything on scene and then finishing everything en route to the hospital. So we have been spending more time on scene. And John, what's that been like for you in Seattle with your cruise? Yeah, well, as, so we, we have a two-tiered system. We have the BLS and ALS, and I'm a, a BLS provider. And when our our ALS firefighters come in, they uh, they are doing the same things, but we're we're adding, you know, adjuncts to our to our uh, equipment so that uh, you know it can collect the aerosolized things while we're doing. Uh, using a bag valve mask and things like that, and uh, it is definitely more cumbersome to do CPR and go through that rotation when everyone has a gown on and everyone has has a mask, and and it it increases the fatigue. So so you know people can you may have to switch out when, uh, doing the uh, compressions before they were uh, would normally be ready to. Uh, but as far as holding back i mean the, the the thing that we're holding back on uh, uh, like i mentioned before was it's it's the uh, the interaction you have with people you know you're you're very standoffish with people and uh it's 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 uncomfortable you know and and sometimes people don't understand especially you know there are folks that are that don't quite understand you know they may be mentally challenged or something like that and they don't understand why you want them to stay a few feet away from you and and you don't want to make people feel that way uh, but for the most part, uh, we've we've decided at least up until now we're going to, if someone needs, you know, an intervention, we're going to do it, and we're going to try our best to mitigate it. And what we have been doing, like our typical tier response, you know, a fire engine or an aid car, which is a BLS ambulance with with two EMTs on it, they'll show up, and if the medic, the paramedic ALS unit was in route or had called for one. Typically, they just walk right in, uh, but now we're more inclined to have them wait outside, and, and we'll tell them on the radio whether or not we need them to come in, again, to, to avoid an exposure and avoid, uh, you know, bringing more people into the scene than we need to. On the topic of PPE, we've got a question here from Chuck, who is asking, uh, in general, what PPE are you provided with? Are you having trouble with any of the supply? And how are you deconning your ambulance? And Chuck kind of wants to know what uh, you choose to wear to make patient contact, and it's both crew members are doing that. Rich, can you address this question? Yeah, before I go into that, I just wanted to go back um, to the previous question. Um, it's certainly an adjustment in our approach. Um, I don't, however, like the word holding back or um, people out there thinking that they're not receiving the treatments that they normally would. Uh, like I said, we're taking a more calculated approach, but our clinical judgment is strong. If there's a treatment that you need, we're not gonna withhold it. We have certain things that we have placed in our protocols, like John said, the filters and uh, different things that we can do to protect ourselves. 
we want to make sure everyone's protected and getting the right treatment, but there's not a treatment that we're going to identify that you need and then withhold. If you need that treatment, you're going to get that treatment. We're going to get you to the hospital. Um, like our Katie said, uh, that clinical judgment does come into play if they're not as severe and you can hold off on that breathing treatment, then that's something that your clinical judgment is going to tell you, but that's not um, going to be a basis for holding back a treatment. Um, in terms of PPE, moving on to Chuck's question, um, we were really lucky. We had a good stockpile. We had our partners from patient care EMS help us out um, getting some PPE. We had administrators working tirelessly, roaming the web, competing against everyone uh, to get some PPE into us. We have different levels of PPE for different procedures, uh, like we've been saying, any aerosolized procedures, intubations, RSIs, things like that. Um, we're going in full respirator, Tyvek, um, but on a standard call, we're kind of doing that doorway assessment, uh, determining what's going on in there and what is the appropriate level of PPE. We don't want to be wasting PPE unnecessarily. Um, so the general approach is N95, goggles, gloves, and then once you get into those uh, more advanced procedures, we're upping the PPE levels. Arcady, anything to add on the PPE front? Um, no, I mean, pretty much we are good with our disposable PPE currently. Um, and like I did mention, one of the larger home improvement stores donated an entire pallet of half-face respirators to New Orleans EMS. So we were all issued our own respirator mask, with, which has interchangeable filters in it. So we do all have those on us at all times as well. And John, I know Seattle um, is doing something they call a scout program with just sending one person in. Can you just talk about that briefly uh, as it uh, oh. relates to PPE? So I should, I should clarify that. Uh, we, have, we haven't quite named it that. That's just something I said. But, uh, it, and it's okay. usually two people. So, so uh, we will, our, our regular uh, fire engines and ladder trucks are staffed with four people. And it used to be that in, or, in order to give the best care we could, we'd take all four of us and go, go solve whatever issue was going on. And we had plenty of hands to do everything. And uh, if, if, it was, if it was a more critical call, like a, a CPR or something like that, or some type of trauma, we'd have even more people come and, and uh, you would end up with seven, ten people on team. And now, you know, if we have a, a critical call, we still send the same amount of people and we'll get in there with our gear on and, and do what we have to do. But if we have a normal BLS call uh, with, with, a, with a fire engine showing up, there's two, the two guys in the back or the two folks in the back will be gowned up, masked up and in full PPE and they will enter the scene and they will evaluate that situation and decide if they need the other two members to come in and help or one other member to come in and help. If they're on an aid car, like, the, like a lot of downtown areas have with the two, the two MTs, uh, they, will, they will both enter. Uh, but sometimes, you know, the one person can, can hang back you know, if it's, a, if it's a fairly simple run and, and uh, you know, you have a fairly stable patient, you know, you can send one person, let's say, into the apartment and the other person can stand out in the hallway and, and reduce that exposure that way while they're still in voice and, and uh, possibly visual contact. Um, you know, what we don't want to do is, is compromise our safety 
uh, by sending one person in. You know, not not every neighborhood is a great neighborhood. Not every environment is safe. Uh, we have uh, you know people that uh, live outside and you know up in the in the bushes and the hills and whatnot. So that's that's the kind of thing where you don't want to um, you don't want to um, send one person walking off into the forest by themselves. So we typically don't do that. But but one uh, but typically we are we are reducing the amount of people we're sending into a situation by half and then having them you know call call out if they need more got it uh, ppe wise we're still oh okay. go ahead ppe wise we're 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 still doing doing okay the one, you know we're we're shorter on some things than others but for the most part uh we are able to uh to to maintain our operations uh, with the ppe that we have are any of your operations sterilizing N95 masks? And if so, how are you doing that? Rich, is Empress doing that? No, there was some talk about it early on uh, before we knew what we would be able to get our hands on. Um, the N95s are usually pretty good until you're doing those advanced aerosolized procedures. A lot of providers are wearing surgical masks over the, the N95 just so you're not getting droplets on the front of it. Um, that way they could use it a couple times. but we've been lucky that we've had enough where we haven't been able to uh, stretch the integrity of our N95s. John, are you sterilizing masks or do you uh, have enough of a we, supply? We, do, we are not doing that yet. Uh, there are some departments around us that uh, have uh, created some processes to, to sterilize things and even to make their own PPE out of, uh, out of donated materials or, or other materials that are impervious. But uh, we have so far not had the need to do that, but uh, we have looked into it. And, and if, it, if this continues beyond our supply, uh, then we'll, we'll certainly have to, have to explore that option. And Arcady? No, um, we have not gotten to that point. Like I said, we have uh, those half-face respirators that we're wearing now instead of wearing the N95s. But prior to getting those, you know, we were doing the same thing that Rich was mentioning, wearing our N95s, but then wearing the surgical masks on top of them to help cut down on what they were being fully exposed to. Got it. Uh, we got a question here for John. At your peak call volume, what percentage of your calls were COVID-related, would you guess? And now that your area seems to be on the downward trend, what percentage are COVID-related? So uh, the latest data I'm um, I'm looking at uh, looks like at the peak we were around 15 to 20 percent per day, uh, and now we're uh, we're down to less than that, less you know maybe 10 percent. And it's that's uh, the the data I'm looking at is uh, you should see this chart. It's it's pretty complicated, but uh, it seems like it was it was about 20 percent uh, at least you know, presenting with a flu-like symptom or some respiratory complaint. And then, uh, and then lately it's gone down a bit to more, to closer to 10%. And that's, that's, that's a, that's an educated guess based on what, what I, what I can see here, but uh, it's, it's sure. by no means definitive. Right. Caroline has a question about disaster relief units. She says that she is aware that the New Orleans area did bring in uh, additional resources, um, other private EMS companies who came to help uh, run the calls. And she wonders, 
are there other areas like New York or Seattle use, using these additional resources, and how have they affected the home crews? Have they improved the call volume and the amount of um, work you're doing? Arcady, can you start? Uh, absolutely, they have. Uh, our surge units or disaster relief units that have come in from other areas of Louisiana have been a godsend to us. You know, they've helped so much because they're 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 helping us run all these 911 calls. We don't run interhospital transfers. We're strictly 911 in New Orleans, and there are many times lately where we've been no units available and the addition of these surge crews has helped us handle that call volume and we've definitely seen a decrease in how many calls per night that our units are running due to having these extra units rich that's happened in new york as well is that true yeah absolutely the greater new york city area received um, a large uh, amount of fema units from around the country. Um, if anyone's listening that came in and helped us out, it made a huge difference. Um, you guys have no idea how much that helped. Uh, our call volume was crazy and you guys just came in and made it a little bit lighter on us, which was great. Um, whether they were covering inner facility transports or picking up 911s, uh, it was great to have people and providers from around the country coming in and seeing that interaction between uh, different crews. It was a pretty cool experience, but we definitely did uh, have a lot of FEMA relief, and that made a large difference in our response. Another question here about uh, your own sanity and your own health. Can you talk a little bit about dealing with your friends and family and those that you live with? This listener says that they imagine that working your shift and then coming home is really anxiety-provoking, and there might be some changes that you're making in your lifestyle. Arcady, can you talk about that? Um, absolutely, it's anxiety-provoking. It's stress-provoking. You know, we're coming home, like me personally. I come home to my fiancé, who is also a civil servant, so he is out dealing with the public as well. But he has five-and-a-half-year-old twins that he has partial custody of. So the last thing I want to do is come home and bring this home and risk them or him getting sick because of my job. So I have started changing clothes at work. I don't even bring my uniform home except for to wash it. And when I do, it goes into a bag at work, gets tied closed, goes straight into my laundry room, and then straight into the washing machine. I try to cut down bringing any of it home. And then being sick, actually having the virus myself, was even more stress and anxiety producing because now I have to worry about cleaning all the surfaces to make sure that nobody gets it because I had it. And then having to tell two five-year-olds that they can't hug me or they can't snuggle on the sofa with me like they want to because I don't want them getting sick. It's it's heartbreaking, but uh, luckily I have a very understanding family around. John, what's that like for you? Well, uh, the I guess the uh, dealing with friends part is pretty easy because since we're all uh, on a semi-lockdown here, you know, most of us are, you're supposed to anyway, uh, go to work and come straight home and, and kind of stay there besides taking a walk and things like that. 
and for the most part, compliance on that is pretty good. You know, I'm not hanging out at my friend's house very much or, or they're not coming over here. Uh, coming home and, and uh, worrying about my wife, uh, you know, we're both healthy people. And, I, you know, hopefully, like, if, it, if we became infected, it would be mild and, and, and not, uh, not something that caused us a huge problem. But uh, we'd still rather not get it. And we have, we both have elderly people in her, in our lives and we'd rather not transmit that virus to them. So, you know, when my family in-laws wanted to get together, you know, it's, I, I kind of feel like I'm the one who shouldn't go because I'm the, I'm the biggest vector there is. Everyone else stays home and, and they don't go out into the, the, uh, the arena with the COVID and, and, and bring it back into their house. I'm the only one who does that. So I, I feel like if they're going to have a, a dinner together or something, I, I should just not go because I'm the, I'm the one who's likely to get them sick. So that, that's kind of hard. Um, and you know, my wife's very supportive, but, but, uh, I, I, uh, I feel the same way about, uh, interacting with her. Like I don't, I want to be close, but I don't want to, I don't want to get her sick. I don't want uh, to be the cause of anything bad for her. So it's a, there's a, there's a balancing act with that you know, where you're trying to maintain your relationships, but also, you know, deal with the fact that you're, you know, you're, you are a disease vector for now. I mean, there's no, there's no way around that. And uh, like uh, Arcady mentioned, like, you know, things that used to not be a big deal, like I'd come home wearing my uniform and, you know, throw it in the basket with everything else. And, and uh, now it's more like, I, I should leave it at the station. We have a laundry facility there, you know, but sometimes I have something else to do and I have to wear it home and, but in that case, you know, it's more than likely I'll just I'll, I'll always kick my boots off at the door in the garage and not uh, not bring those inside. But the rest of it immediately put it in uh, put it in the laundry and, and wash it. And Rich, anything to add? Yeah, there's uh, certainly a added level of anxiety coming home. They're like we're taking extra steps at work. We're I'm, at least I'm taking extra steps at home, like Arcady said, leaving the uniform outside, making sure that you're not cross-contaminating anything. Um, luckily, I live alone. It's just me and my dog in it. Um, so I come home to him, and I don't have to worry about infecting anyone else. Um, but this is a tough time, and it's a time where we want to be embracing people, and we want to be there for people, and it's the exact opposite. We can't be there for people, and we can't embrace people. Um, my niece and nephew, Will and Sloan, they're the ones that get me through the tough days, and uh, I haven't seen them in six weeks, so that's certainly been tough. Uh, looking forward to seeing them soon. Um, so it, it's tough. Uh, like John said, you don't want to be that one uh, to spread this, and even if your family picked it up at the grocery store, they're going to come right to you and say, oh, well, I was, I was near you. You probably gave it to me. So nobody nobody wants that responsibility of having spread it um so there's definitely an added level of anxiety um that comes along with it for sure garrett asks a question about your cardiac arrest protocols and have you adjusted them to remove ventilation to reduce the aerosol particulates specifically doing cpr of course with no ventilations or uh, putting the patient on a mask over the non-rebreather or the bag belt mask. Arcady, are you guys doing that? Uh, no, we have not taken ventilations out of our cardiac arrest protocols at this time. Uh, we are, however, 
trying to minimize aerosolized procedures and things like that. But with our PPE, whoever is on scene at the time of the cardiac arrest should be in full gown, at least, if not Tyvek suit, along with our respirators, goggles, gloves, uh, to protect ourselves from any of those aerosolized procedures. We have cut down on our cardiac arrest times that we're working them for, but definitely not taking out that ventilation yet. John, what is the changes? What have the changes been in Seattle, if any? Uh, we have not changed anything with regard to our protocols, except for the, uh, as I mentioned before, the um, if we have a an ALS response and the uh, ALS responders or the ALS uh, unit is not there yet, uh, we'll give them a notification that they either need to come in or they don't. Obviously, if it's a if it's a CPR uh, response, then they, then it's assumed that they're going to come in. So. So that, none of that has changed, and nothing and nothing's changed as far as uh, as far as I know, with the uh, with the protocols for how we and uh, and they handle cardiac arrest. Any changes for your shop, Rich? Yeah, there's certainly been changes. Um, I don't think we've taken anything out. We've certainly added things um, for provider and patient safety, um, such as the filters and different thing different steps we're taking our PPE. Um, in terms of keep everyone safe, but we're certainly not holding back any necessary treatments. We are adding steps to um, get these treatments done properly and safely, um, but we're not taking out any critical steps that you would normally expect from EMS. Janet asked a question about the um, corresponding decrease that a lot of pe people are reporting. I know most of your cities would uh, have these numbers where we're not seeing as many STEMI and stroke patients, and maybe it could be that people are fearful of calling. Um, Rich, is that happening in New York despite the increase in call volume? Yeah, so that's a, the new topic of conversation here. We just started seeing that kind of towards the end of last week. And as we're getting through the bulk of the COVID cases, looking back, we're realizing, wow, those strokes and heart attacks and those run-of-the-mill everyday calls um, kind of slowed down a bit throughout this. And uh, we're looking at the numbers and trying to figure out if it's fear that's generating people not to call or what exactly that is. Um, so we've certainly seen a decrease. We're trying to assure people that we are taking the right precautions on our end. I know we've kind of become pariahs. They don't want us coming into their house and exposing them. They don't want us taking them to the hospital. Um, but there are options. I, I would urge people not to wait if you're experiencing some symptoms you would normally call 911 for. Um, we can, at least at Empress, we could dispatch a community paramedic. You get a full assessment, an EKG. Um, we can connect you through telehealth to your doctor um, and then leave you at home. So you're, you're still getting the assessment and the treatment that you need um, without necessarily having to go to the hospital. We'll determine that when we get there. But if we can keep you home, obviously, that's our goal. We want to keep you home and healthy. Um, so it's, it's been an adjustment period. Um, and there certainly have been changes, and we have seen decreases in STEMIs and strokes, but uh, we just want to get that message out to please call us. Don't wait on these things, um, because uh, if you wait too long, it's going to be a bad outcome. 
Or Katie, it sounds like New Orleans BMS has seen those same trends. Um, what are your thoughts on this dip in call volume in, in these cases? We actually absolutely are seeing the same trends. Uh, so April of 2019, we had 13 documented semi activations compared to three as of April 26th of this year. Um, same thing with our stroke activations. In April of last year, we had 20 documented van positive stroke activations from our service. And this year, as of the 26th of this month, we've only had 11 this month as well. You know, so it's a, it's a drastic drop. March is showing the same type of numbers. We've had a 33% drop in STEMI activations in March from March of last year to March of this year, and a 43% drop from March of last year to March of this year with our stroke activations as well. Our health department, the New Orleans Health Department, as well as us at New Orleans EMS, we've taken a lot of actions to remind the community what signs and symptoms to look for of stroke, of heart attack. And we have been doing our best to try to reassure everybody that the hospital is the place that they need to be if they are indeed having a stroke or a heart attack or having signs of them, that just because the virus is out there, they still do need to be evaluated and treated for these other medical problems as well. Great. What changes are you guys seeing that are happening in your organization um, or your operations uh, that you do not see going away? This is a question from James, and it's uh, definitely something that a lot of people are wondering. When everything goes back to quote unquote normal, um, are there things that we will be doing differently? Um, Arcady, can you talk about that? Uh, we as a service have been in discussions and looking into adding that DLS response aspect to things prior to the virus happening. We have put that DLS service into play since the outbreak of the virus. So that is something that we're interested to see if it's going to stick around afterwards because it is, it can be helpful. It does help take some of the strain off of the paramedics and being the only one to run calls with New Orleans. So we're waiting to see if that's going to happen. Um, but that's really the only major change that we're thinking may stick around. We definitely know our cardiac arrest protocols that have been changed for the virus aren't going to stick around. And the downplaying or down using of the aerosolized procedures, that's not going to stick around after this is gone. Rich, you're in charge of the mobile integrated health or community paramedic um, part of Empress EMS, so um, maybe that's something to talk about. Um, I'm sure changes for the better have been made throughout the whole organization. What do you see as changing for good after this? Yeah, there are absolutely things I would like to see stay. Um, the treat-in-place protocols, the alternative destinations, um, things we're working on coming down with ET3, um, which people will start hearing about in the next coming months. Um, there are some innovative, cool stuff that EMS can start doing, and I think that this has kind of put, um, unfortunately, it's a bad situation, but it's kind of put um, us on display uh, as to what our full capabilities are. Um, so I, I think there are some good things that may come out of this. Uh, but on the ground level, we just we need to push for it and uh, be united and 
get these uh, things through the politicians. John, any changes that you see sticking around after the pandemic passes? So we have uh, we have a couple different things that were in the works before that were pushed uh, by this crisis. Uh, one of which was, uh, you know, kind of like the, the thing uh, Rich is discussing, the community paramedic. We don't call it that, but we have a mobile integrated health unit uh, that was started up a few months before that, and it was just a pilot program to deal with low acuity patients that were overwhelming our resources in the downtown core. And as of because of uh, some of the things that are happening with COVID-19, uh, that unit has expanded its area citywide uh, to handle, uh, you know, low acuity responses or things that don't necessarily need a hospital but need a longer follow-up than a regular BLS unit can give. And before this, you know, we had we had in the budget to start up another one, so we'd have two for the for the city, and uh, so that is something that uh, that is has proven to be very effective. Uh, they they can bring the right resources to bear on a problem that we 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 do we don't handle very well because as a as a as a, a BLS unit ALS unit your your options for patients are are you know pretty binary you can leave them home to take them to the hospital treat them or you can treat them at home take them to the hospital you know in, in a couple different ways yeah, but other than that there's not that much that can be done. And, and those are great interventions if people need them, but but they're not uh, always the right thing. So that has worked out great, and it's a good thing that they're expanding that citywide. Uh, I think internally, I think understanding you know how uh, how uh, how important it is to decon and uh, and uh, to worry about ourselves, you know, as as uh, carriers of, of disease and uh, and also uh, our, our our workplace. You know, I mean, the fire stations get cleaned a lot, but now we, they've never been as clean as they are now. And, and uh, you know, hopefully that some of that will stick around. We've act, actually had to automate or, 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 or change some processes so that, uh, so that we can stop shuffling paper around the fire department. So, you know, to reduce that contamination then. So a lot of things are getting scanned and emailed instead of written down on paper and things like that. But those are, those are minor things, but they're, uh, there are things that definitely were in the works that that got uh, put on the front burner versus the back because of this this thing we're going through. Rich Raphael has a question. He references the uh, pretty well-known incident in New York where there's been lots of lobbying for more fair pay for EMS, but was shot down by some government officials saying that the work is different. Um, what are your thoughts and your opinions on whether you think there's going to be in the uh, improvement overall in the working conditions and that EMS gets what they deserve, according to Raphael. Yeah, New York's has certainly taken a forefront. FDMY really is. Uh, they have some contract talks coming up, so they've kind of taken the forefront in terms of pay parity and getting on the same level of fire and uh, PD there. Um, yeah, our politicians are ignorant. Everyone knows that uh, our New York City mayor is he he really has no idea what EMS is. He he may like to pretend, but uh, um, I hate that the slogan "EMS is different" has become kind of our calling. Uh, it's it's tough, but this isn't going to change uh, with just politicians. This starts with us. This starts on the ground level. 
this starts with a unification of EMS across the board. Um, FDNY likes to make this fight FDNY specific, but this is EMS specific. Uh, this is industry-wide, something that's going to be talked about heavily moving forward. Um, so, yeah, hopefully we get rid of de Blasio soon and we could actually have someone that we can get in and work with. Um, I know Empress probably won't be happy that I said that, but that's a pretty uh, common uh, common thing around New York. Got it. Arcady, we have uh, Charles listening, and he's with his high school EMT class uh, on the webinar. Welcome, everybody. They want to know, uh, when you had COVID-19 COVID and you were quarantined, who took care of your pets and your other family members? Oh, hi, everybody. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, I was quarantined at home, so I was able to take care of my own pets that y'all can hear purring in the background that I apologize for. Um, and then, like I said, my fiance is here, and uh, I, he did his best to take care of himself as well as help take care of me while I was here. So I looked right. out. <laughs> We have a question from Garrett. Garrett's asking about EMS and public health, and he wonders, is um, EMS going to advance into a legitimate healthcare field or profession? This is a bit like the question about New York. Um, but uh, do you think that, that, John, do you think that EMS should really be considered more public health than public safety? Um, you have a unique perspective, obviously, on this call, as you're also a firefighter. What are your thoughts? Well, uh, and I also have a unique perspective because of where I grew up in the emergency services. So uh, I did spend some time as a private private ambulance EMT, uh, but uh, for the last 17 years, I think I've been a uh, I've been a professional firefighter and EMT. And in our area, and in most of the West Coast, uh, those those two services are integrated. So it's it's when you get hired as a Seattle firefighter, you know that part of your job, a huge part of your job, at least by call volume, is is EMS. You know, something like you know, eighty plus percent of what we do is respond to EMS emergencies. So so that's not a uh, the question is it it's it's uh, it's an interesting one for me because I, I and I understand I, I I've spent been all over the country and I have friends all over the country that work in fire and EMS and I, I realize it's different in, in on the east coast and and in the south and and uh but for us you know if you're uh you know EMS is EMS is not a separate part of my job it's just it's just my job it's 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 the way it's been since the 70s I believe Seattle was you know it's disputed I think between us and Miami and LA but at, like sometime in the late 60s early 70s one of us started the very first paramedic program in the country and we have never stopped advancing and, and getting better and, and focusing on that as a very important part of our job. And I like, I like to say, you know, every, every firefighter will tell you they're the best and they're the most aggressive and they're the coolest, but, and it's true, whether you're from Cleveland or Seattle or New York city, you think you're the best and you're probably right. But uh, EMS, you know, we have, we have numbers to prove that. You know, if you look at what what we do in Seattle, uh, is it's uh, it's it's something that people come from around the world to look at because we we focused on it, we've ingrained it as a culture, and 
you know, you've probably seen it. You know, if you have a heart attack here, you have a 50, 50% plus uh, chance of survival to, to hospital discharge. And that's a, that's something we're very proud of and we're constantly making it better uh, by research and, and trying new things. And, uh, you know, it's just part of our culture. So here it already is that way. My, obviously I would advocate for it to be that way nationwide because it seems to work. Uh, but I realize everyone has their own structure and, and this is America. You can, you can try it and do it how you want, but, uh, the numbers seem to say that our way of doing it is pretty good. And, and that's not to disparage any other way. Cause I, I know like, like in New Orleans, for example, they, they do great work and, and it's, uh, it doesn't have to be structured the way that, the way that we have it, uh, in order to have success. But, uh, I know the system that I've been in is, uh, it, there's no separation, you know, our paramedics make more money than the firefighters do. So that's, that's a, that's a, we're in, we're in Brazaro world on the, on the West coast, I guess, because <laughs> they, uh, they actually are well compensated for what they do. Great. Uh, we have some physicians uh, listening in from uh, uh, a group um, who is practicing um, somewhere in the South, I think, and they say um, that they would like to do something for their local EMS providers to show their appreciation. And they know that, homemade food or driving up to the station is sort of not uh, a good idea right now. Um, Arcady, what, what would you suggest they do from a practical standpoint to show appreciation for EMS? Just tell us thank you when you see us. If you see us out after shift or before shift running our errands that we need to get done, just say, hey, thanks for what you're doing. You know, those, those are the most heartfelt kind of things that we can get, knowing that we are appreciated for what we do. Um, our service specifically is not having any problems with food donations as we have been getting food donations daily to keep our crews fed, um, as well as our crew members who are on quarantine. Uh, we're also having an abundance of food that we're able to feed them and their families as well, which has been really nice. Um, we've had a couple grocery stores around here who have paid for all the first responders' groceries during their special first responder grocery hours that they're doing. Um, so it's just, it's nice to know that we're appreciated and just a small thank you goes a long way. John, what would you add? Uh, you know, I think I, I agree with that. You know, saying thank you, it, it's nice to it's nice to feel appreciated, um, but at the same time, you know, it's it's sometimes when you when you're the one working and still ha you still have your job and you you maybe even have access to you know extra shifts you know where you can earn extra money you know sometimes you know you want to it's like I appreciate someone buying me a, a coffee but you know sometimes it, it'd probably be better off giving it to someone else who needs it more than me. But we I mean obviously we really appreciate it if you, if you got something for us uh you know we we really appreciate it and we and we, and we love you for it um but like katie was saying i i think the the appreciation is, is enough you know I'd, i i signed up for this job i knew there was risk with it and uh you know for the most part i, I think uh, uh it's a it's a fair trade you know with what i get from the city but but it is it does feel good when the when the community appreciates you and that's that's the best thing i've ever gotten out of it Great. 
we have a question here from Colleen who is wondering about certain call types. Uh, she wonders if you've seen an increase in domestic violence calls as more people are cooped up at home with each other um, and it might be different than, than usual. Rich, have, have you seen that? Um, I don't have any numbers on that. I know I have seen reports of uh, things like that increasing. Um, on the road, I really haven't noticed a significant increase just through jobs coming over the radio waves, but I couldn't speak to numbers on that. Or Katie? Uh, we, me personally, I have not noticed an increase in those domestic violence calls. I, same thing as he was just saying, I don't have those numbers from the police department on what they have been responding to, but EMS-wise, personally, I haven't noticed an increase. Got it. And Charles I, haven't, has, I haven't either. Oh, go ahead. Please, yeah. No, I was, I was not say, seeing I, it there. I hadn't either. Okay, no. good. Uh, we have a question again from Charles asking about uh, kind of the logistics of your cardiac arrest patients, especially those you pronounce on scene. Are you required to transport the body or does law enforcement or the medical examiner handle that for you? Arcadia, how does it work in New Orleans? Uh, since we're primary 911, we never transported the bodies to the morgue or to the funeral home. Uh, as long as family or law enforcement were on scene, we always just left the patient's body there with either that family member or that law enforcement officer until the coroner's office or the funeral home arrived to get them. So we haven't had any changes on that aspect of things. Rich, how about you? Yeah. Um... We really haven't seen too many changes with uh, things like that. Okay. Um, Moving we, on. Oh, yeah. Ahead. We never transported dead bodies. Um, so everything with that is the same. Um, gotcha. We would just turn over custody to the police and they would walk the family through the next steps, whether that be the ME or uh, nurse or uh, funeral home. Same here. We have a question. We have a question from Colt, who uh, wonders what you guys think about um, hazard pay for first responders. It's certainly been in the news a lot um, that some agencies and departments are increasing their pay to EMS providers during this time, and sometimes they call it hazard pay, um, sometimes they don't. John, what do you think about that as a concept? Uh, I, I think... Uh... It's a little bit of a touchy subject. You know, there, there are certainly different opinions on it. Uh, I knew what I was going to get paid when I took this job. And uh, I, for the most part, I'm, I'm okay with that. I think it's fair. And uh, that being said, you know, if, if the city or the state or the federal government wanted to recognize what I did during this time uh, with, with some extra money, I, I don't suppose I'd turn it down. But uh you know, I, I don't, I don't, I've, I've mixed feelings on it because I know not everyone is well compensated for it. So, so I, I certainly wouldn't want to get in the way of, of, of someone finally being fairly compensated. You know, for you know because of the extra risk that we're taking on right now. And you know, going back to my statement, I, I, I knew what I was going to get paid, but I didn't, I, I didn't anticipate a pandemic happening that, you know, that turned the world upside down. So, uh, I, I don't. 
I don't have a, a fully formed opinion. I just, I just, uh, I lean towards, towards no for myself, but that doesn't mean no one else should get it. Rich, what are your thoughts on hazard pay? Um, it, it is a tough subject. Um, we, we all kind of, people say we knew what we were signing up for. This is obviously an extenuating circumstance, um, but uh, we're not expecting any hazard pay. I don't think any of us are out there doing this expecting anything extra um would we turn down money if the government wanted to come up with some extra dollars for us probably not um but it's certainly not something that at least i'm personally not looking for we have time for about two more questions and then we'll start to wrap up here kevin has a question about hospital-based emergency uh, providers uh, physicians nurses those types of things how have your relationships with them changed he says, I feel like this crisis is an opportunity for increased cross-professional education and relationships. Arcady, can you talk about that? Um, so in New Orleans, at least with New Orleans EMS, we've always had a very good relationship with our ER doctors and our ER nurses. A lot of them do take the opportunities to come do a shift with us and understand what we do on a daily basis. And we're a big teaching service, so one of the med schools actually send all of their residents to come do shifts on a sprint car in New Orleans for a couple months with us to get that experience and that understanding of what we do on the streets. So I feel like our relationships with those hospital providers were already in a good place, but I think it's brought us all together a lot more. I think we're all a lot closer now because we're all in the trenches together handling everything, and it's made us our bonds even stronger with each other. Rich, how has that changed up at all in New York? Uh, like our Katie said, we always had a good relationship, especially with EM providers. They're the providers that we uh, see the most. We're interacting with them day to day. I think they kind of have the best grasp on our capabilities in the field in terms of uh, physicians there. So we've never really had a bad uh, relationship with them. This is certainly uh, a time to bring up conversation. We've always had good uh, recourse with our physicians. If we have questions, if they have questions on our end, uh, we're sharing information constantly, um, teaching each other. So uh, cross-professional education, that's huge. Um, certainly something I, I would love to see increased. I think this could help increase that. Um, but like our Katie said, we've always had a good relationship with our EM providers. Um, so hopefully that doesn't change. I think we'll end with this great question from Morgan. This will be our wrap up here. Going forward, Morgan asks, what do you think is the most important thing you've learned from this experience? John, no pressure. <laughs> uh, well, uniquely, I've had... Uh, I've had two perspectives. Uh, I, I'm working my regular shift, you know, at the fire station and responding to, to alarms. And I also spent uh, a few weeks working in our city's emergency operations center, being the fire department EMS representative, and working with all of the partners that make this city run. And what I found out is, for one, uh, we have we have 
a, a level of resources in our city and this country that is that is the envy of, of most of the world, and I'm happy to be a part of it. Uh, it's it doesn't go without hiccups and and little mistakes, but for the most part, uh, we all work together and we get things done. And you know when we all work together and and, and follow good advice, it seems like things things have worked out for us, especially in our area. Uh, and I'm proud of that. And I'm happy for it. A lot of it's, you know, it's frustrating not to be able to just go do what you want. But uh, the things that our doctors and and uh, and professionals said about how to how to handle this virus, those lessons seem to have been correct. And and I'm 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 glad that our area was able to uh, to implement that and uh, and have a reduction. Uh, and I hope we uh, we continue to do that and get this. Uh, get this thing wiped out for, for everyone, you know, in our country and around the world. I've also found that, you know, we, you know, we, we have to learn how to, how to change things on the fly. You know, there's a saying in the fire service, it's a hundred years of uh, tradition unimpeded by progress. And that's true. We, we don't like changing things. And we've changed nine times over the past couple of months on how we're responding to something. And we've, and what we've proven is that we can do that. You know, we can make a change and we can move forward and it's not perfect. It's not without frustration, but it works. And so uh, th those are two things that, that I've learned. We can work together and that, and that we can change. Um, also, I'm, I'm just more than ever proud to be a part of the fire and the EMS service. Uh, I think it's a, it's, it's a great profession to be a part of. I wouldn't want to do anything else. Um, I really appreciate hearing from all of you from around the country, and uh, and uh, that's what I, that's what I learned. Thanks, John. Or Katie, you're next. I think we've all learned a lot during this. You know, EMS is a fluid thing. You know, we we need to be ready to change at any moment. Medicine is constantly changing. So therefore, our treatments and how we handle things should be constantly changing. And we should always be prepared for that. You know, it also, it humanized a lot of us. You know, we think, not necessarily that we're invincible, but, you know, we all kind of have this, oh, that's not going to happen to me, that's not going to happen to me kind of attitude. And then you show up positive with COVID-19 when you weren't expecting it. And it just kind of makes you realize, like, all right, maybe I am still susceptible to all these things that I'm exposed to all the time. And it's just, you got to stay with what you know, but also be ready to change at a moment's notice, which I know sounds ridiculous, but it's something you learn to do in this job. And then just be here for each other because that's what we need the most is just each other's support and the support of our friends and our family and the public. And, you know, we'll get through it. Everything will come back to normal eventually. It's going to take some time, but we'll all get there. Thanks, sir, Katie. Rich, how would you answer this question? Yeah, I'm sure there's going to be like six books written on what we've learned from this. There, there's so much that we've learned from this. It's tough to narrow down. Um, just what I've taken away from this is uh, seeing the full scope of EMS. Like Garrett asked earlier, we are first responders and we are also healthcare providers. I don't think there needs to be a distinction. Uh, we're kind of the glue that holds first responders to healthcare and healthcare to first responders. Um, we're out there doing high level procedures. There's 
really no way to argue that we're not healthcare providers, um, but we're also the first healthcare providers that you're going to see pre-hospitally, so that makes us first responders as well. So that integration has been uh, eye-opening. I think there's a lot that we could do with that moving forward. Um, I think EMS needs to step up as a more integral part in the healthcare system um, and the glue between the first responders and uh, healthcare as a whole. Great. Well, that's going to be a wrap for today, everyone. I want to thank our speakers one more time, our Katie Hennessy, John Goins, and Rich Straub. You guys have been just terrific, and we appreciate so much you taking the time with us today. We'd also like to thank Zoll for sponsoring today's presentation. And you should all know that this webinar will be archived and available for viewing online at www.emsworld.com webinars. You can check out all of our COVID-related webinars and more on this page. And be sure to subscribe to EMS World's monthly magazine, e-newsletters, and our podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, and I want to thank our attendees for spending their afternoon with us, and again, our speakers. We hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Bye. Hillary. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you in Vegas, September 14th through the 18th, 2020 at EMS World Expo.